Has anybody here seen my old friend Martin? Can you tell me where he's gone? He freed a lot of people, but it seems the good, they die young. I just looked around and he's gone. Sings Marvin Gaye. We here at Solutions to Violence, along with our guest today, Robin Wildman, noticed once again, Martin Luther King Jr. is no longer with us, having lost his life to an assassin's bullet April 1968. We here at Solutions to Violence are proud to celebrate Black history by featuring Robin Wildman, who uses Martin Luther King principles of nonviolence to help students learn to resolve conflict peacefully. Hello, folks. We are Solutions to Balance. We are happy you can join us today. You're listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. Solutions to Violence is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is an affiliate of the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation, following as part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you can contact us by emailing us at solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Our guest today is Robin Wildman. Robin Wildman began to teach Martin Luther King Jr.'s principles of nonviolence in 2001. She did this at Wakefield Elementary School in Rhode Island and continued when she moved to Broad Rock Middle School in Wakefield, Rhode Island. She worked with the South Kingston Police Department and Bernard Lafayette Jr., a longtime civil rights activist who worked alongside Martin Luther King Jr. And now she teaches the strategies of teaching peace to teachers at Broad Rock and in schools across Rhode Island. Rhode Island students and school personnel are educated in Kenyan nonviolence, giving them the skills to reconcile conflicts thereby positively impacting all communities in Rhode Island. In 2001, Wildman dedicated her professional and personal life to practicing and teaching Kenyan nonviolence. Her 28 years as public school teacher has given her the platform to train educators, administrators, and students in Kenyan nonviolence. Getting into a philosophy of nonviolence can be a very long and hard walk, and even difficult philosophical way to teach. Robin, would you describe your journey to the philosophy of nonviolence for us? Sure. Thank you for having me. I was a public school educator teaching fifth grade in a small suburban elementary school. And you mentioned earlier that I was working with the local police department. I was partnering with them and presenting to my students a program called Community Works, which involved team teaching with one of the police officers in town and teaching students about how to keep your community safe. One day, the police captain, Bill Flatley, brought in a guest, and they were standing in the back of the room. That was not an, an infrequent occurrence in my classroom. Often people would drop by, so the police officer and I continued the lesson. And at the end of the lesson, I was introduced to the guest. The guest was Dr. Bernard Lafayette, Jr., who worked closely with Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. during the Civil Rights Movement in 1960s. Dr. Lafayette was a freedom rider. He was the main strategist and reason why the Selma movement occurred. I did not know any of this about Dr. Lafayette, did not know who he was, unfortunately, but the children in my class were really interested in, in who he was and what his story was all about. So he stayed and he talked with us and the children asked for him to come back. 
at the time, Dr. Lafayette was the director for the Center for Nonviolence and Peace Studies at the University of Rhode Island. So he was living locally and he ended up coming to my classroom every week and teaching the students and myself about this philosophy that he learned from Martin Luther King Jr., which is now known throughout the world as Kingian nonviolence. He talked about Dr. King's life and the work that he did with Dr. King. And the students one day asked Dr. Lafayette if he could take them to the places where Martin Luther King worked. Well, we're in Rhode Island, and you know that that was Atlanta, Georgia, Montgomery, Alabama, et cetera. So, you know, Dr. Lafayette has a really good sense of humor. And he said to the students, sure, I'll take you. You have to raise $20,000. This was in 2001. The students were like, okay. And so with the parents and the students and honestly, the entire town behind us, we raised $20,000 in three months. Um, And we were able to take 20 students for free. And we had their parents come. We had some other teachers and some um, reporters for the local newspaper. We were followed by the state newspaper, the Providence Journal. And we spent five days down in Atlanta, Georgia. We went to the King Center. We were in Tuskegee, Alabama, where Dr. Lafayette lives. We went to um, Selma and marched over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And After that trip, first of all, you can imagine that was a life-changing trip for everybody. Wow. But when I returned, I started reflecting on my teaching philosophy and my philosophy as a human being. And And I felt like this was something that was meant to be for me, something that I've been maybe looking for and didn't know I'd been looking for it. And I really decided right then that I needed to share what I had learned from Bernard with others. So the next year, I started teaching right away the Kingian philosophy to my students, and then 9-11 happened. And because the students had been learning about Kingian nonviolence and about creating the beloved community, as Dr. King referred to it, they wanted to do something and decided that they wanted to write some letters to different places. So they brainstormed, where can we write letters to? We can write letters to the president, to the Red Cross, to the newspaper. So the local newspaper printed some of the students' letters. And believe it or not, the next week, a local resident wrote a letter that I should, that I was being political in my teaching and that I should teach at the Osama bin Laden Elementary School. And that was that was the first pushback that I had received about teaching this philosophy. Along the way, I had very supportive principals in my in my teaching practice and the students that I taught have all gone on to do wonderful things. The ones that I've stayed connected with have decided to get into careers like so that involve social justice. And when I see students 20 years later, they always say to me, the most important thing I learned in my entire education was nonviolence. And so that really made me think about spreading the word, I guess you could say. And how can I, how can I deliver this philosophy to more than just the 20 to 25 students that I had in front of me every year? So how'd you do that? So I knew the way to do that was through the teachers, that if I could 
if I could teach the philosophy and the strategies of nonviolence to teachers, then they could exponentially teach this and it could spread in a bigger way than, than just that I could impact. So that's how Rhode Island schools, nonviolent Rhode Island schools came to be? Eventually, so yes. So after teaching at Wakefield Elementary for 19 years, I was transferred to this middle school in town. All, the, whole, the whole fifth grade went to the middle school. So it was actually a grade five, grade six school. And I was doing my teaching of Kingian and nonviolence as I do every year. And some of my colleagues and I would sit and eat lunch and I would talk about the conflicts that my students were having and how they solved the conflicts using this philosophy. And one day they asked, can you teach that to us? And so I conducted an after-school training. I had already written a curriculum for teachers for kicking and nonviolence because I had done some teacher trainings earlier in my career. And we had 15 to 20 teachers. Both principals came, the nurse, the music teacher, the librarian. And after that 20-hour training, which was conducted voluntarily after school, they said, well, we want this school to be a nonviolent school. And I said, well, we need more people. Go recruit. So one of the things we know from Dr. Lafayette is that the civil rights movement was based a lot on military strategies. So when you use the word recruit, that's it's not used in the, in the sense of violent being used yep. in a violent way for war, but in recruiting a nonviolent army, as Dr. Lafayette refers to it. Repurposing. <laughs> yes. So I ended up training 40 of the staff at the school, and we created an action plan and a nonviolence team, and we completely transformed the climate and culture of that school and continued for six years. We, and then I retired, but we really did a great job as a team figuring out all the parts of the school that could connect to this philosophy of nonviolence and also the strategies to address conflict. So for example, I helped the vice principal. We redesigned the discipline system at the school so that it was rehabilitative rather than punitive, which if you know anything about public school, that's quite revolutionary. Yeah, we both taught in public school. Yes. Let me ask you, that was a, a curriculum that was pretty extensive, included K through 12. How in the world did you possibly accomplish a K through 12 uh, curriculum? Um, I wrote a K through two curriculum and then a grades three through 12. And it's all based on Dr. Lafayette's leadership manual that he uses to do this Kingian training all throughout the world. So there's different levels of training and this is the this is the level one training curriculum. But I took all of his lessons and tailored them for, oh, I'm a teacher. How would I teach this to my students? So that that's the curriculum that I have. And then the K through two is obviously very different, as you can imagine. So Nonviolent Schools Rhode Island was an organization that came from interested people who I teamed up with and pitched this idea I had of institutionalizing Kingian nonviolence in every school in Rhode Island. And that came from a conversation that Bernard Lafayette had with Dr. King on the morning of April 4th, 1968, which was the day of the assassination. 
And Dr. King said, Bernard, we need to institutionalize and internationalize nonviolence. And then Bernard left. He got the phone call that evening that Dr. King had been murdered. And from that moment, he dedicated his life to institutionalizing and internationalizing nonviolence. And so I've taken that on in the way that I can impact the world, which is right here in Rhode Island, to create this organization, this nonprofit, Nonviolent Schools Rhode Island. And our mission is what I just mentioned. It's to institutionalize Kingian nonviolence in every school in Rhode Island. So Robin Wildman, as you pointed out, all Rhode Island students and school personnel are educated in Kingian nonviolence, giving them the skills to reconcile conflict, thereby positively impacting all communities in Rhode Island. How do you arrive at this this, uh, vision? After many revisions, the basic tenant, like I said, the basic idea was we want to, we must, not we want to, but we must teach this to all of our educators and administrators so they can teach it to every student because what we find in our training is that most adults don't have the skills that are necessary to address and reconcile conflict. So if I'm a teacher in a classroom and my students are having a conflict or I'm in conflict with a colleague or a student and I don't have the skills, then how, how am I to help a student when they're in conflict? And so I feel that it's extremely important that we deliver this work to everybody. We saw at Broad Rock a significant reduction in, in the repeat offenders at our school. So I, mean, I know that it works. I've witnessed it. I've practiced it myself. And I, I think it's really essential that we give students, particularly in today's society, specific strategies to use when they're in a conflict. And not just the strategies, but understanding conflict. We teach what is conflict? What are the emotional levels? What are different types of conflict? So were those repeat offenders, were those those, uh, teachers or students? Students. (laughs) (laughs) Teachers are the slow learners. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I expect, you know, uh, teachers need to learn these too. I mean, it seemed like it would reduce the conflicts in the staff communication. Is that, did that happen? That's right. And nonviolence gives people the courage that is often needed to address a conflict. A lot of people, particularly adults, avoid conflict and hope it just goes away, which we know it does not. Yeah. So, Robin, is there data that demonstrates a reduction in suspension, maybe conflict between students, calmer environment? Yeah. So we have we have a lot of qualitative data. The quantitative data is is not written down, but from what I've experienced at Broad Rock, for example, we tracked students to see if they are using the strategies that we're suggesting to them when they are in a conflict. And most of the these students, what I'm referring to are ones who've had overt physical conflicts. And yes, they're using the strategies. And we worked with a school in Providence where they had tremendous number of suspensions that were significantly reduced after the the staff and the administration had gone through the training. 
just keep in mind that nonviolent schools Rhode Island is only three years old. So we have a strategic plan and part of our strategic plan is to start tracking the data. So how do you do that? How are you going to, is it after a conflict or you do it on a regular basis? So how do you, how do you keep that, that information? So schools collect the data themselves about who, you know, which students are in conflict, which they call those office referrals. So who mm-hmm. has had an office referral? What was the outcome of that referral? So for example, was the student's parent called? Was the student's privileges taken away, etc.? What we're trying to get schools to do is to redesign their discipline system so that it's more rehabilitative and restorative. And when that happens, then students who have committed an infraction or been a perpetrator of violence onto another, they realize that they're not being pushed out of the community. They're being surrounded by a loving community who wants them to become better people. How many schools are involved here? So we're growing our training team because of demand. So what you have to understand first is that there's a specific training that we go through to become trainers of Kingian nonviolence. It's very extensive. It's 80 hours of, of learning, and then it's practical work. And so we've just begun a level, we call it a level one training to add to our training team. So we've been in 10 schools in Rhode Island But we've also conducted institutes where individual teachers have come and have brought the lessons back to their own classroom. So their school won't necessarily be transformed, but what they're doing is basically what I did by myself for a long time. Is that what you call, is that what you call pre-service teaching? No. So pre-service would be a student at a university or college who's in the Mm -hmm. education field. And we call those pre-service teachers. I was, it used to be called student teaching, right? Sure. That's part of our mission is to also reach out to the pre-service teachers at the university and colleges, because we know oftentimes maybe you get a class on conflict management, which isn't really that helpful when you get out into the real world. I think that this this philosophy and these strategies would be extremely helpful to a young person just starting out in the teaching field. Yeah, I wish I'd had it. (laughs) How does Kenyan nonviolent strategies differ or maybe similar to restorative practices strategies? That's what the school system here Uh, Jefferson County Public Schools is implementing now currently. I like to say that in our whole process of Kingian nonviolence, restorative practices are the end, but there's a lot of things that need to happen before that. And one of the things that needs to happen that we do is we, we create the beloved community within our own teaching area. So if I'm a classroom teacher, I'm doing that in my classroom, but also a librarian can do that. The school nurse can do it in her place. And we help people who aren't classroom teachers figure out how to do that. So once you build that sense of community, the in Kingian Nonviolence, we have six principles and it's the value system. And it tells students and staff, if you've hurt me, why should I reconcile with you? What's my purpose for doing that? If you've hurt me, then maybe my inclination is to hurt you back. 
But when we have a practicing Kingian nonviolent school, and I say practicing because it's always a practice, we're never perfect at it. When you have a practicing Kingian nonviolent school, those six principles are the guiding light for why I want to reconcile with somebody who has harmed me, why I might offer forgiveness, and why at the very least we can restore a civil relationship. And so one of the principles, it's principle two, is the beloved community is the framework for the future. And it's that sense of purpose that we're all part of this beloved community at our school or in our classroom so that when I'm hurt, I understand that hurting you back is not going to create this beloved community. Okay. So what is Kingian nonviolence and and how is it a solution to balance? Talk to us about those six principles. So Kingian nonviolence is based on six principles and six steps for conflict reconciliation. So we say that the principles are the will and the steps are the skill, will, the will and the skill. So what I did when I created the, the curriculum for youth is that I rewrote Dr. King's principles for the purpose of students being able to understand Dr. King's lofty vocabulary. Um, as you know, he was, he was quite a writer and had a prolific vocabulary. So the six principles comes from Dr. King's first book that he wrote called Stride Toward Freedom, which was about the Montgomery bus boycott. And one of the chapters is called Pilgrimage to Nonviolence. And that's one of the, the uh, documents that we teach in our training. And in that chapter, Pilgrimage to Nonviolence, he outlined these six principles. And when Dr. King died and Dr. Lafayette started to create this program to teach Kingian nonviolence, he extracted these six principles and worded them in a way that people could grasp onto them and, and understand them. And then with Dr. Lafayette's permission, I change some of the words to make it not just not just easy for kids to understand, but palatable for public school. So you have to understand when I started doing this, I was all by myself in a public school. So I had to be able to justify why are you teaching this to the students? So I immediately took the Rhode Island State Health Standards and the Social Studies Standards and the English Language Arts Standards and figured out how this can all connect to academic teaching. So the six principles, I'm gonna I'm going to state them in the kid language for people who might be teachers and interested. So principle one is nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. And for young students, if you want to substitute the word brave for courageous, sometimes we do that. Principle two is the beloved community is the framework for the future. And sometimes we say the peaceful community is the goal for the future. So when I started out again, I felt like beloved community was a little bit religious sounding. And so I substituted peaceful community and I knew that people could understand that quickly. Number two is attack problems, not people. It's our shortest principle, but the one that has the most power behind it, I think. Attack problems, not people. Number four is know and do what is right even if it is difficult. Number five is avoid hurting the spirit and body of yourself and others. And number six is the universe is on the side of justice. 
And that one I kept the same. That's what Dr. King has said. And in fact, he said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice, which is a good explanation of principle six. So those six principles are the value system that we teach, and it gives a purpose behind our existence. Okay, so you have convinced middle school students, 10, 11, 12-year-old students, that these six principles are the principles they should adopt instead of retaliation or getting even with someone. How do you do that? How do you convince students at that age, as I'm thinking, that's a fairly complex understanding, and it's also uh, contrary to what they have grown up to believe. Yeah. So what we do is not just teach the principles. We teach civil rights history. And when I say that, we teach true history, not textbook history. We, we teach, like I said before, about conflict. What is conflict? It's a normal, everyday occurrence. And conflict does not have to be a bad thing. And if we keep conflict at what we call a normal level, that's the level where we can, can have differences of opinion and, and decide on how our relationship can continue based on those differences. When conflicts escalate, that gets a little bit stickier. So we teach students to recognize in themselves when they're escalating, and we give them techniques on how to de-escalate. So th this, this Kingian curriculum is not just about teaching six principles. It's about also learning about ourselves and how we react when we're in a conflict and how we can change that and how physically we can recognize the physical change our body goes through when we start escalating. And those are some of the strategies we teach to students who have perhaps done wrong to somebody else. So how were you feeling when you got to this point? And we help them literally write down and track out the whole conflict so that they can see what happened and then talk about different strategies. So one of the strategies is get space, get help. And so the get space is not for anybody else, it's for you. Because often the boys will say, well, I can't do that, you know, because what were they taught? If someone hits you, you hit them back. And so we're, we're giving them, like you said, Jim, a whole new way of thinking that this is a new possibility because what would happen if you got space for yourself? Think about your next steps. You wouldn't be back in the principal's office. You wouldn't be missing schoolwork. Your parents wouldn't be called. The whole community wouldn't be affected by that one action. And so it's, it's a pretty in-depth teaching and a relearning. It's actually an unlearning of what society has told us. That's pretty philosophical in a way. If a kid's getting hit, how's he going to get space if he's going to be hit again? Right. So, so there's two options, right, that we think. It's fight mm -hmm. or flight. Yeah. We're saying there's a third option, and it's nonviolence. So we have six steps. It's a strategy-based philosophy. So Dr. King was not about love everybody and, you know, if you hit me... I'm not going to hit you back. And that's the end of it. That's not the end of it because justice needs to happen. So the end goal is reconciliation. And that's always our goal. But we have six steps that we go through and we teach people. So we've got the first two steps are gathering information and educating. 
So I'm going to find out facts in a, in a conflict. So not, not in an overt conflict, for example, but let's say kids, you know, they're big into these rumors, right? So instead of assuming that the rumor is true, I'm going to doubt my first impression and I'm going to gather information. I'm going to get some facts, find out more information. And at that point, I'm educating myself, but I might also educate somebody else. And it might have been a misunderstanding. And in that case, we can go right to reconciliation. That really hurt my feelings. I don't want you to do that again. I'm sorry, I won't do that again. And we can reconcile. But big conflicts aren't that easy. So if you think about, for example, the bus boycott, they tried to negotiate with the bus company and the bus company refused. So negotiation is, is the goal of is the goal of a conflict. You want to negotiate a win-win, but when negotiation fails, you go to a direct action, which was the boycott. And the purpose of direct action is to force people back to that negotiation. And then you can hopefully get to reconciliation, which doesn't always happen, um, but you leave the door open for the possibility. And this is so much more involved than I have time to explain, but that's kind of, yeah. Sure, sure. Well, this kid hit me and it's going to keep hitting me. What do I do? So in a Kingian nonviolent school, you're not by yourself. You're not alone in, in this practice. There are other people that are part of your, your community. So yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's something that other people stand up for you in that instance. Somebody goes and gets a teacher. Somebody tries to help you get away. So it's not you standing by yourself. And we talk about three types of power. One of the types of power is power within, that you have the strength to be nonviolent. But if you feel like you don't or you don't have the courage, then another type of power is power with, and you get your people. So who are your people? We have kids I actually identify and write down a list of your people. Who would you go to? Which kids? Which adults? And in, at Broad Rock, we actually surveyed every single student, 550 students, who are your people? list three adults, list three students. And we took the the ones that we were concerned about, the kids who didn't write anybody, or the kids who only wrote one person or had no adults and did a conversation with them and with the, um, the school social worker, the school counselor to find out how we could hook those kids up with somebody because everybody needs to have somebody. That is great, that's great. Yeah, you, you kind of explained one of the issues that boys particularly face is, is the Hobbesian trap. If if someone pushes pushes a student, a boy in a middle school, what happens next? They're up in each other's space. Yeah. And the third thing that happens is there's a crowd that gathers around. That's right. So both of those boys are caught in that trap because either one of them backs down, that makes him look weak. Exactly. And we're, what we tell the boys, particularly because we find often it's boys that are in overt conflicts. Dr. King said that, first of all, violence is the language of the unheard. So, you, so whoever's hitting you has another issue that we need to address. And also that violence is for cowards. And if you think again about principle one, nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. It's a way of life. It's not something you go in and out of. You're like, oh, I'm going to use it now, but not here. It's a way of life and it takes courage. And fear can fuel your courage. You might be afraid, but that use that fear to fuel that courage. And so I think in my experience that 
kids are hitting back because they don't know what else to do. There was a study that was done with boys or people ages like 18 to mid 20s who had killed somebody. And when they were asked why, they said, because I didn't know what else to do. Yeah. And so we have to teach students and staff, but let's focus on students. We have to give students that other option besides fight and flight, it's nonviolence. And nonviolence is creative. You know, if someone is yelling at you and escalating, um, being creative in that moment, sometimes using humor, there's lots of different strategies to teach about not getting hit if someone is getting to that point. And another thing in a Kingian nonviolent school is that when somebody creates a situation where there's a victim and a and a perpetrator, the uh, perpetrator is still surrounded with love because Kingian nonviolence is based on love, that we love you so much that we want to help you figure out a different way to be. It's different than getting in trouble. Okay. We, we know that Maria Montessori as a leader in the peace and advocate of peace education. She was nominated for three consecutive years, 1949, 50, 51 for the Nobel Peace Prize, she says, establishing lasting peace is the work of education, not, not a, a politics. And she says, all politics can do is to keep us out of war. Now, you talk about that in terms of practicing nonviolent school. So what you're describing is what you would call a practicing nonviolent school, right? Correct. Where, where we've changed the climate and the culture. So the climate is how people feel within the space. And the culture are like the rules and the procedures and the policies. And so if the climate and the culture reflects that Kingian practice, then kids start realizing, the students in the school and the staff, that that's not what we do here. We don't bully, we don't ostracize, we don't intimidate. Um, we, we're a place where, where all are included. It sounds like that can go back and forth between students and staff. I mean, staff can initiate it and students can also initiate it uh, without staff even being around, right? Correct. Well, let me ask you, I'm going to go back a little bit to uh, one of the other things you mentioned. In terms of getting this curriculum a, a part of the largest curriculum in the school, we've had that difficulty. Uh, Jim and I worked with the Jefferson County Public Schools for a while, and we could not get Solutions to Violence program a part of a regular curriculum. So how do you work with that? With the, You have a regular curriculum. How do you put this in as a part of that? Yeah. First, you need to really get the administrative team on board. And we do require for a school to be a practicing Kingian nonviolent school, we require that at least one administrator is trained alongside the other teachers. Because it, we, we know that in nonviolent organizing, the top-down, bottom-up approach is the most effective if the top recognizes that the bottom, so in this case, it could be the, the staff, that the bottom has resources that are important, like knowledge and information. And the bottom realizes that the top has necessary skills like resources to support and when the top and the bottom come together, you can create a new reality in a school. And I think that helping principals understand that when you teach Kingian nonviolence to students and staff, 
there is more teaching time because you spend less time on discipline. I, I didn't discipline my students. They managed their own stuff. Once, once I could teach them how to do that. And sometimes I would facilitate, you know, sometimes I'd be the investigator to gather the information, but oftentimes they would do, do this work on their own. I had stuff to teach. <laughs> I, I didn't have, you know, I don't always have time to help you, but I'm here to assist if you need me to. And then the other thing is, is connecting it to curriculum. So for example, oftentimes when I was teaching theme for English language arts, because I taught all subjects, students would use one of the six principles as the theme of, a, of the story, because we know every story has conflict in it. And if my state standard said I had to teach some I don't know, some essay writing thing. I would teach the Montgomery bus boycott and that would be the basis of the essay. So it's a, it's a way to incorporate some of the Kingian work into the regular curriculum. So this is, this is a, a long process in some ways. You, you, it's, you know, it's talking about the influence of students, the staff and staff to students, but it sounds like you almost have to start in the classroom, prove in the classroom with your students that it works and demonstrate that to the administration or to other teachers and get them enrolled and doing that in the classes and that sort of thing. But you kind of have to start from the bottom up, right? Yeah, yeah, I think. So we sometimes in our institutes have a single teacher come from a school, she's by herself or he's by himself. And they go back and they're like, well, how can I get this in my whole school? And what I say is you need to have a critical mass of people, adults trained in Kingian nonviolence. So by critical mass, you know, we say 15 to start. And, and that's the way to, to start getting this going in a school. So Robin Wildman, another area that is important to all of us and uh, particularly young minds is the trauma resulting from COVID-19. How would Kingian nonviolence approach disease and, and the pandemic that we're now experiencing? I don't, I don't know, maybe, uh, the Rhode Island school system is uh, now all computer and students are not attending. Uh, what's that situation look like? It's, it's a mixed bag depending on the district. So in my district here, parents had the choice of kids staying at home or going in person. So teachers are really stressed and juggling how to teach students in front of them at the same time that they're teaching students at home. And they, yeah. honestly, I retired last year, thankfully, so I don't have to do that. But I, I my hats are off to anybody who's teaching right now. Um, so in Kingian Nonviolence, I talked about those six steps. That Those six steps were used to, you know, in, in Montgomery, they were used in Selma and Birmingham for the Freedom Rides if, if they can work. In, in something like that, they can certainly work when you're addressing a conflict like disease. So they work for any conflict. And again, one of the first steps is to gather information and get your facts straight, which is something that this administration that's leaving tomorrow did not really do because they weren't listening so much to scientists. Um, so getting facts are important. And another one of the steps I didn't mention before is personal commitment. That's a really big conflict, COVID. So you're in it for the long haul. And to be personally committed to stick with a conflict until it's reconciled takes, takes a lot of self-care. Courage. 
<laughs> courage. You need to have your people with you. That personal commitment can dwindle in some in some instances when people get frustrated and discouraged. And and again, having people around you to help lift your spirit is really important. Um, and so I'm confronted with somebody who's not wearing a mask. Correct. How do I deal with that? Uh, well, you have different options. One is to get away from them. So that's for your own self-preservation. And, and that would be a direct action for you. Um, another right. one is to ask a question. And, you know, in this day and age, people can get sensitive very quickly about things and feel like they're being accused. And so I ask questions like, can you help me understand and fill in the blank? Or can you explain to me, um, but in a, in a kind way, not in an accusatory way. So we always talk about tone of voice being really important too. Like, yeah. So if I saw somebody in a store, personally, if I saw somebody in a store with like a mask down off their nose or no mask, which around here, everybody pretty much wears a mask, but sometimes you see people and it's not over their nose, I walk away. That's, that's my strategy. So it's not always, it's not always advisable to address every little thing that you see. You have to think about the outcome and what's the intent behind it. Right. So nonviolence can be walking away from a, a conflict as well. So yes, in some instances. So in that case, I'm, I'm not going to ever see that person again. But if I'm, if I'm living with or working with or have a relationship with somebody, then walking away is a first strategy, but then you're going to use your six steps. You're not going to ignore it. Yeah. So I might walk away because I feel myself escalating and I need to, to calm down first. That would be a, an instance where you would walk away. So Robin, you advocate for Kingian nonviolent strategies, but how do you define violence? We here at Solutions to Violence do injustice, suppression, white supremacy, misogyny, all forms of violence. If injustice fits into your definitions of balance, what do you say to students about how to deal with injustice? So first, one of the modules that we teach is nonviolence violence, and we do a T-chart where on one side the heading is nonviolence, on the other is violence. And we ask students to offer words and phrases. When you hear the word nonviolence, what comes to mind? When you hear the word violence, what comes to mind? And what we find is oftentimes the side for violence is never ending. Students have way too much information and knowledge about violence and very little about nonviolence. And then we do a five word definition for violence. Violence is, and it's, yeah, it's emotional, physical, mental harm, and oftentimes intentional harm created by another individual or individuals. So the, the end goal of, a, of our conflict resolution, can we don't use the word resolution, we use the word reconciliation. And so reconciliation in essence means justice. That's justice has been served, forgiveness is given and a, and a relationship is restored. And so you can seek justice on a personal level. I, I feel like you harmed me and that was unjust and I, I want justice. Or we can look at societal ills. You know, Martin Luther King talked about the triple evils of racism, poverty, and militarism. So for our students, we want them to know that they have the power to make change, whether it's 
in within their own circle of friends or family or to go out into the world and do that. And that's what I was referring to earlier with former students who are doing things like that. They're, they're out. Bayard Rustin uh, has explained uh, what direct action is a very much part of Martin Luther King's uh, junior strategy. King's goal was to as you say, achieve fairness and justice through nonviolent means. But his strategy included the direct action. That direct action included boycotts, demonstrations, protests, physical blocking, intersections, and some of the other actions, but it forced the established authority to react and, and negotiate. So what do you say to students about direct action tactics? in terms of fairness and justice. I'll give you two examples. I'm talking about fifth graders. So uh -huh. one year I was absent and I was a substitute who was doing bad things in the classroom. I think uh -huh. when kids did something he didn't like, he was making them do push-ups and swearing at the students. And so at recess, the students, some of the students got together and said, we have to do something about this. So they went back inside and this was their plan. They enacted this plan. So one of the students asked to go to the bathroom and she went and told the principal what was happening. And the principal came and sat in the classroom for the rest of the day. And that's, that substitute was never asked to come back again. And that's exa an example of a, a direct action. Um, and these students knew from their training that they didn't have to be subjected to that kind of violence. Um, and then another example I have in a, a different year, um, students were complaining about the lunch menu, the food in the lunchroom. And I, I always would say things like, well, what are you going to do about it? Not what am I, I'm not doing anything about it because I don't eat that food. <laughs> so, what are you going to do about it? And so I gave them time to make their plan. So their plan was to invite the head of the food services to the classroom. So the person came and had no idea what was going to happen, but the students had set up the chairs in a circle and he was welcomed into the circle. And what they had done was they had taken the menu and circled all the unhealthy food choices and offered him alternative selections that they thought were healthier because I also taught health and they were learning about nutrition. And that's why they realized, well, wait a second, I'm learning about nutrition, but this is not nutritious food. But they also gave him the opportunity to explain why his hands were tied in some respects because he only had certain food to choose from as per the state regulations. And so they came, they came to an agreement. This is the negotiation piece, the win-win of, of what things he could change. And the interesting part of this story is this was May. This was not going to affect these students at all because they were leaving this school and going to a different school the next year, that they had done this for the rest of the kids who were coming after them. That's not only an example of a successful negotiation because the next step was to boycott the food, right? If we don't yeah. change it, we're not going to buy it. But it was also an example of selfless, a selfless act, not to benefit us, but, but to benefit others. And he did make those changes that they suggested. And the students wow. didn't feel like they had to react to the teacher, a subject teacher who was treating them badly. They didn't have to act out in the classroom. That was a, it seemed like another 
benefit to not only to them but you know to uh, everybody in the in the in the class. So Robin Wildman, you made a presentation with Stephanie Griffin in September 2020. This was at the National Education Association in Rhode Island, an annual third annual mental health summit. What what did you learn from that summit and, and that were you were able to take back to your work? And share with us. Stephanie and I did a presentation for educators in Rhode Island who were members of NEARI. We did not attend the summit, but something that we do, we are aware of and talking a lot about is trauma and trauma-informed education. And also part of our presentation was about being an anti-racist, particularly for white educators. We know that 80% of the teaching force is white and how they can redesign and unlearn, like I said before, some of the things that we learned growing up about the injustice of racism and how, how do we as white educators teach students who are of different color and background, but also how do we inform our white students about racism and how to be anti-racist people? So that's a that's kind of a, a new angle that we're also using in our training. Oh, and we've had some uh, some unusual, very unusual national events recently where disaffected voters and supporters of the president attacked our, our national capital. How would you teach that to students of any age? Part of our curriculum is looking at the truth, people's truths not the truth, but people's truths, their perspective. So when you're in a conflict, what we say is we already know ourselves what we need and want when we're in a conflict. It's more important to focus on what your opponent needs and wants. So if we're looking at an opponent, I can't find a better word to say than opponent, but I think you know what I'm, I mean when I say that. So in this case, in the capital trauma, the opponents have a need and a desire for something. Um, I was on a Zoom call with Bernard Lafayette yesterday, and he was talking about what happened in Washington, D.C., and he said, in order to understand people, we need to stand under them and lift them up. And so I don't look at people as my opponents more. I would look at those folks as there's some there's something that it is missing for them. There's something that they need that they're not getting. And to try and understand is the only way I can do that is if I had an opportunity to talk to somebody who felt the same way as those people to try and understand. So again, we go back to gathering that information and educating myself and listening. And listening, yeah. It's so important not, I don't go into a conversation like that to say what I think. Again, I'm saying, can you help me understand how you feel? That doesn't mean I'm going to walk away and agree with them, but just coming to that place that we need to go back to of having civil discourse is so important. Yeah, it's not a debate. <laughs> no, and also if, if what we also know is if people are angry and escalated to that point of anger, that's not the time to have a conversation because then no one's listening. But to, to get to a point, listen, we all might have people in our families who feel the same way those people felt. To get to the point where you can just sit down and calmly have a conversation. And when the conversation escalates, we say, let's revisit this another time when we're feeling better about things. 
you know, not to shut that door, but like I said before, to always leave that door open for the possibility of reconciliation. It's been a wonderful conversation with you, Robin. Are there resources that you would recommend for teachers and, and uh, students about nonviolence that they could they could take from uh, take back to their classroom or for themselves? Or for themselves. So I would suggest going to our website, which is www.nonviolentschoolsri.org. There's a place where you can contact us on that website. We offer institutes where we welcome people from other places. So you know that we're nonviolent schools, Rhode Island. That means that we train teachers here in Rhode Island. But in our institutes, we welcome other, other educators. So that would be a way to learn more about Kingian nonviolence and a way to bring it back to your classroom. And yeah, we welcome anyone who wants to contact us for more information. Kingian nonviolence isn't something where you could just buy a book and teach it. It's, it's really something where you have to immerse yourself in learning more about it and learning about the philosophy from people who have practiced it. And then you can go out and, and do good things with, with the information. Yeah. Any other thoughts that you want to leave us or leave our audience today? I think for a final thought, I would say to keep your mind open to people who have differences from you and that differences are things to be celebrated so that if you are in opposition with somebody's position, the best thing that you can do is think about the fact that we all share common values and that's a good starting point. Everybody wants to feel loved and have a safe community and the way we go about getting those things can be different and look very different. But understanding that we come from that place of common values, even if those values look different out in the world, is a good way to start a conversation and to not be afraid to have conversations with people who have differences of opinions from you. Thank you, Robin. It's been wonderful speaking with you. We have to say, listeners, we are out of time. Our guest today has been Robin Wildman of the Nonviolent Schools Rhode Island. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Robin Wildman will be aired on Tuesday, February 2nd and Wednesday, February 3rd. It will be placed in the Forward Radio archives on February 3rd. To listen by way of our archives, just forward, just go to forwardradio.org and scroll down to Program Archives. Then go to Solutions to Violence, program titled Nonviolent Schools, Rhode Island with Robin Wildman. For more information and the schedule of programming that will surprise, delight, and challenge you, visit us again at Forward radio.org and click on broadcast schedule. Please respond to us with your thoughts and suggestions by visiting solutions to violence 18 at gmail.com. We want to hear from you and we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Jamie McMillan with Jim Johnson for Solutions to Violence. Our thanks to technical engineer Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Thank you once again for joining us in our exploration for Solutions to Violence.